Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 44. Jesus said, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the truth and to receive it, to welcome it. Teach us today by your Spirit what you want us to know and make us by your Spirit what you want us to become. For the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you recall from last week, we began our study in verse 37 with Jesus healing a boy from demonic oppression. And we saw that this was the beginning of a a series of vignettes that record the many failures and blunders of Jesus' disciples. Showing them to still be in need of much correction and long-suffering from Jesus even though they've been following him for about a couple years by this point. And this is a little disappointing, given that these embarrassing episodes come off the heels of Jesus' transfiguration as his divine glory was revealed on that mountaintop. But nonetheless, Luke records these various moments of their spiritual shortcomings following the transfiguration to show us that even so, Despite knowing and and, uh, believing the majesty of Jesus, we so often take our eyes off of him and lose sight of him to the result of our great distress and wavering faith, as we saw last week. Now today we continue through this series of unfortunate events, if we can call it that, and Luke concentrates his focus on the disciples not only taking their eyes off of Jesus, but specifically their tendency to put their eyes on themselves in self-admiration and self-adulation. In other words, the central issue that links all these verses together is the issue of pride in the heart of Jesus' disciples. Now, every human being is guilty of pride. I mean, after all, pride is the very root of what sin is. 
is thinking highly of yourself apart from God to the point of exalting yourself above God, which is the very nature of sin. This is why we define sin as rebellion, because in our proud depravity, we have refused to submit to God's loving authority and instead insisted on being our own God and master. And so pride is everywhere. It's ubiquitous, deeply entrenched in man's fallen nature. But there is a certain type of pride that is especially in view here, that is especially foul and atrocious, and that is spiritual pride. Now, what is spiritual pride? Well, simply put, it's being proud, being self-impressed, self-inflated because of your spiritual condition, your spiritual status, your spiritual position. It is to feel a sense of self-importance and superiority over others, whether believers or unbelievers, because you have embraced the truth of the gospel, and maybe the unbelievers have not. Because you are walking in the light, maybe more faithfully than others, not in darkness. You are devoted to Christ and His Word. You are mature in your thinking, as it were, But, you know, there's nothing more self-contradictory and antithetical to the gospel than this spiritual pride. Because it goes against the very essence of the gospel of God's grace. What it means to be a Christian is to be a recipient of undeserved, unmerited mercy and love from God. Forgiveness of the infinite debt of sin that you could not pay back. Righteousness that is given to you from the one who earned it for you. This is the gospel. And then we receive it all by faith, by simply trusting in Jesus and what he has done. And scripture tells us that even our faith in Christ is a gift from God. As Ephesians 2.8 says, Even you believing the gospel is a miracle that God worked in your stubborn heart because we're so blind in sin that we would never choose to walk towards the light unless the Spirit of God first miraculously opened our blinded eyes first. You see, salvation is entirely by grace from beginning to end. Not by works, not by human effort or willpower. So that, as Ephesians 2 reminds us, so that no one may boast. There is no room for pride in the gospel. But it speaks to the vileness of the sinful heart that we could find a way to self-boast about the very thing that is owed to nothing but the grace of God. You know, Calvin was right when he said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. I'm talking about John Calvin, not Calvin over there. We see here in these verses that it is very possible to use even the gospel, even use godliness as a means to puff up ourselves, to glorify ourselves. And so we must all be very careful to never lose sight of the grace of God that has not only saved us, but still sustains us each and every day. Well, why is it then that we so easily forget these things that are so basic and essential to the gospel? Well, because in our flesh is this insidious self-centeredness that makes self 
the center of life, self-explanatory. It is the perversion of fallen human nature that believes that the ideal state is for the world and everything and everyone to be oriented around you, to be catered to your needs, to your will, to sing your praises. And this is true of all of us to varying degrees. Our sinful flesh loves to receive, to receive adulation, admiration, approval, acceptance. But the flesh hates to give. Because that takes something away from us. We deserve more. We deserve better, so we think. And that was the psyche of Jesus' disciples, as we see here in these verses. You see, we left off last week with Jesus foretelling his death once more. While everyone was marveling at everything Jesus was doing and all the displays of his divine power and glory, he says in verse 44, Let these words sink into your ears. Please pay attention. I'm telling you straight and loud and clear that the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And by this point in Jesus' ministry, he was speaking to his disciples, not in hidden terms, but out in the open, openly explaining that he had come not to revel in his own majesty, though rightful that may be, but that he had come to lay down his life to suffer for sinners. But we see in verse 45 that they did not understand the saying. And it was concealed from them, hidden from them, so that they might not perceive it. Now you might think, well, it sure sounds like God was the one who kept them from comprehending what Jesus said. And so how can you blame them? But we must understand that throughout the Bible... We always see the absolute sovereignty of God and that he is in control of everything and nothing happens apart from his ordaining. We see the absolute sovereignty of God and the full responsibility of human beings. And that we do what we do because we want to do it. No one forces us us to do it. And we are fully accountable for our actions. Both of these statements are true, side by side, equally presented to us in Scripture. A paradox, but nonetheless, both true. And so in other words, here, yes, the saying was concealed from them by God according to his sovereign purpose. He sovereignly kept them from fully understanding, in a sense. But at the same time... Jesus was speaking to them plainly about his impending suffering in unconcealed, explicit speech. So there's a sense in which they actively chose to be in ignorance as free moral agents. They kept themselves from fully understanding Jesus' words. Both are true. And we know this because in Matthew chapter 17, verse 23, Matthew's parallel account, it says that when the disciples heard Jesus say it, they were greatly distressed. They themselves were unsettled by the idea and the thought of what Jesus conveyed to them. You see, it's not that as Jesus was saying all of this, uh, a loud Amazon Prime truck drove by and honked, and they couldn't hear what Jesus was saying, and oh, I guess... That's why they couldn't understand it. I guess it was God's will. No, 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 no. 
They heard him loud and clear. An unconcealed speech. But they could not understand it because they would not understand it. You see? They were unwilling to. It was mind-boggling to them that the Son of God would undergo such a fate. So they resisted the idea and remained in their ignorance. Now why? Why were they so resistant to the thought of a suffering Christ? Because the disciples had a preconceived notion of what true glory must look like. Especially befitting the long-awaited Messiah. Because they were operating off a paradigm that true glory and honor was to stand taller than everybody else. Was to rise onto the highest pedestal. And to receive the attention of everyone looking on you and witnessing your greatness. That's how they defined it. That was their mindset and their thinking. And so they they had predefined greatness according to their own calculus. And there was simply no room for self-giving sacrifice to fit into their equation of what is glorious. And so they couldn't handle the truth that Jesus was revealing to them clearly. Because in their carnal mind, they were operating off a twisted value system of glory and honor. And this is very evident in what happens next in verse 46. As they were going their way with Jesus, after Jesus said all these things, the disciples started getting into an argument as to which of them was the greatest of all time, the goat. Now this sounds like a very edifying conversation they must be having, doesn't it? Now if we think about the context... What probably happened was that they started bickering about their ranking within the circle of the twelve amongst each other. Why? Because it so happened that only three out of the twelve were allowed to witness Jesus' transfiguration on the mountaintop. And so perhaps when Peter, James, John came down with Jesus from the mountain, the rest of them asked them, hey, so uh, what, what were you guys up to? And James and John said, oh, it was amazing. I mean, it was a VIP experience. Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry, you, you didn't get an invite. Well, I guess it was only for the spiritually advanced disciples. We, we'd be in that AP discipleship program. And perhaps one of the others, Levi, said, no, no, no. It's more like you guys are so unspiritual that Jesus had to give an extra lesson to you. It's like mandatory summer school for all the kids who did well or who didn't do well uh, during the year. That's what it was. And Peter goes, uh-uh. Remember, Jesus said, I'm the rock. And Thomas said, no, you're only the rock because you're as dense as the rock. That's why I gave you that nickname. And so they just started bickering. It's these petty arguments. It's like high school drama. Well, who's number one? Who's number two? Who's number three? And everyone was giving their case for why they should be ranked higher than the others. But you see the silliness of spiritual pride. They're arguing about who is closer to Jesus. They're taking the privilege of their relationship with the Son of God. And instead of enjoying it and relishing fellowship with Christ, they're using their relationship with them as measuring sticks of their own personal glory. And we'll see this more shortly in action in the next little paragraph, but I imagine that Jesus was just shaking his head, especially in the face of that solemn, weighty revelation of his death and resurrection. And here they were, 
After hearing Jesus saying that he's going to suffer, be killed, and be raised on the third day, and instead of wondering what that is, here they were puffing up their chests and insisting on their own puny little greatness. But that's what we so often do, isn't it? In the face of the majesty of God and the weight of eternal glory that we ought to live for, we occupy our time and energy on such paltry, meaningless ambitions, worldly success, our personal fame, our personal wealth and security, temporal pleasures that all fade away in the end. This is how the flesh thinks. And so it says in verse 47 that Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, knowing the the carnal mode of thinking, he took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus frequently used children as an object lesson, usually to illustrate something to the effect of childlike faith and humility. But here, Jesus is giving a slightly different emphasis because in the first century Jewish culture, children were regarded as insignificant and as a big waste of time. Rabbinic literature at the time said that spending too much time talking with children would destroy a man because he'd be wasting his life away. Why? Why do they think like this? Because kids are just kids. They're not making significant contributions to society yet. You you can't learn from them, although I would beg to differ, but in general, you can't learn from them because you have to be the one to teach them. They have no status in society. You get no social benefits or or increase your reputation by spending a lot of time with them. In other words, the Jewish mind regarded children as unimportant because you cannot receive much from children. Instead, you can only give to them. But here Jesus was saying, look at this child. You all think that this child is unimportant. But whoever welcomes such a child, whoever receives such a child in my name, for my sake, is to welcome me. He was saying, stop caring so much about your glory, your standing, your greatness, how you benefit. True greatness is to be, instead, servant-hearted, even to those who are seemingly insignificant and lesser than you. After all, this is what Jesus has done for us, isn't it? Isn't this the greatness and majesty of Jesus? There's nothing more inferior and insignificant than a hopeless sinner before a holy God. We're fit only to be thrown into the fire. And yet consider how much regard He has given to sinners like us. Think of how much time Jesus spent dining with the tax collectors, with the prostitutes, all kinds of sinners that he might win them in love and that he would give his precious holy life for us to atone for our sins and that he would welcome the crown of thorns on his head for our sake, that he would willingly take on every blow and striking and laceration 
from the hands of wicked men. And that is precisely why we praise him, isn't it? Because we see the beauty of his majesty in his self-giving love. In the fact that he did not consider himself, but that he gave of himself to be a ransom for many. Hence the eternal song of God's people in Revelation 5.12 is what? Worthy is the Lamb who what? Who stayed on the mountaintop and just enjoyed His glory? No, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. All throughout eternity, we will never stop singing of the suffering of Christ because that is what is so supremely praiseworthy of our Savior. That is His glory. And this teaches us then that self-giving, humble, sacrificial love is the virtue and pursuit worthy of our ambition. Giving regard to the insignificant. Having a lowly heart that lifts up others rather than putting them down for the sake of elevating ourselves. Being gracious, generous, charitable to all. This is true godliness and true greatness. But from verse 49, we see two common ways in which as Christians, we miss the mark. And the first is how spiritual pride often manifests toward other believers. Look at verse 49. John answered, he should have just kept his mouth shut, but he thought to answer in response to what Jesus just said about receiving a child in his name. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said, don't stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now this little snippet illustrates much of what is common amongst Christians, a competitive spirit against others outside their immediate spiritual circle. Now you might be wondering how this someone was casting out demons in Jesus' name. Who knows? But evidently, and what's important here, is that this individual believed in the name of Jesus, and he believed that in Christ alone was the power and authority of God. Perhaps he was amongst the various crowds that Jesus had ministered to, as we've seen all throughout the Gospel of Luke. And he came to believe that this Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Christ of God. In any case, in his endeavor to labor in the battle against the kingdom of darkness, this someone was tending to spiritually afflicted people, demon-possessed people, in full faith that the authoritative name of Jesus had the power to deliver such tormented souls. And when they'd be delivered, they'd say, how were you able to do this? He would say, well, I did it in the name of Jesus of Jesus of Nazareth. Have you heard about him? I heard about him, and that's why I'm doing these things. And this was the only way that this unnamed individual was successfully casting out demons. But John noticed all this and said, hey, who is this guy? He don't roll with us. He's not part of our organization, our circle. And John felt the need to tell him to stop what he's doing and of course jesus corrected john listen buddy he's not against you he's for you he's doing the true work of the kingdom of god 
in my name. But you see, this proud attitude of John is so common today amongst God's people. And it probably happens most often in the context of local churches. You know, it's one thing to love your own local church and to be grateful to be a part of it. But it's another thing to be proud and to think that your church is the only church that is true and faithful to God's word. And if someone chooses to not become a member of your church, that there must be something wrong with them. Because you've become so pigeonholed in your allegiance such that the name that you are most devoted to is not the name of Jesus, but it has become the name of whatever name your church is, whatever name is on the bulletin, whatever name is etched on the walls of the church building. And how many times have I seen this attitude subtly creep in to many churches, especially, especially in churches that are committed to sound doctrine, faithful preaching, biblical convictions. Those are all good things. Those are all things that we hold to dearly here at NBC. But what happens so often is that some churches become so zealous for being set apart from the multitudes of the unfaithful churches that are out there. And don't get me wrong, there are many of them. Especially where we live. We live in a spiritually barren land. Many churches have forsaken the gospel. But... In their endeavor to be so set apart from them and to be the faithful church amongst the sea of unfaithful churches, along the way, their primary aim becomes more negatively focused rather than positively charged. In other words, their main endeavor is to be not like the false teachers, to not like the unbiblical churches, to be not like that lukewarm congregation to, to not preach a false gospel or a lesser version of it. And all of this starts to take center stage instead of aiming to just preach forth the gospel, to love Christ, to positively rejoice in His grace. And if so, the church will be set apart naturally, organically, from the many others who have gone apostate. But again, because the primary driving thought, and it's a very subtle thing, but the, but the primary driving thought is to be unlike the bad churches, what happens is that you start believing your own press. And you start to think that you are the only faithful church in a hundred mile radius because no other church is as zealous as you. And you start to nitpick at every little thing that other faithful churches differ with you on. And you start to look down on them and think, and you you lump them all together with the whole big category of unfaithful. Doesn't agree with every little point of our doctrinal statement. And so, this begins to breed a very unhealthy church culture where the congregation acts as if it's us against the world. You're either with us or against us. And you find the members often habitually Bashing other churches. That's all they talk about. Oh, in that church, yeah, 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 yeah. They should be at our church. Why do people do this? It's because it makes you feel like your church is legit. And it makes you feel like you're legit. 
for being at this church. I mean, that's pride, isn't it? Elevating self by putting others down. And what happens often is that when members of such a church leave for whatever reason, it's like they've committed the unforgivable sin. Even if it's because they move for good reasons, they move out of state or they have a new job or whatever it is, there's this pressure in the culture of the congregation. But you know, if you were really faithful though, you would have found a job here. You would have found some way to stay here. And they don't ultimately care if you're faithful to Christ. They care more about if you're faithful to them. As if their church encompasses the entire domain of God's kingdom. And by leaving the church, even if it's for good reasons, it's as if you've left the kingdom of God altogether. Church, we must be on guard of this proud spirit. Look, I love our church. I love being here. I don't want to be anywhere else. I love that you all let me just preach the word of God and say whatever it says without filter and you receive it as such. I love that we're staying faithful to the gospel in an environment where indeed so many churches have abandoned it. I'm grateful for our little congregation. But let us remember that we are not in the business of promoting the brand MBC. Our mission is not to tell the world about Maranatha Bible Church in San Ramon. But our singular focus is to preach Christ and Him crucified. And so long as Christ is preached faithfully, whether on this pulpit or on the pulpit on the other side of the plaza or on the pulpit on the other side of the town, we ought to rejoice, as Paul said in Philippians 1. And this is why we we make it a point to to periodically uh, pray for other local churches at our prayer meeting on Wednesdays. It's a healthy habit that reminds us their success is our success. Lord, bless the other churches around us. Keep them faithful to your word and empower the ministry of the gospel and bless their faithful labors. And if those churches grow a thousandfold, then that is our joy. And this is why we say to every newcomer, look, we want everyone who comes into our doors to find a faithful Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Christ-exalting church. A faithful church. Not the one and only church which is here. Now, of course, we'd be thrilled to have you join our church and commit to NBC and become a member of it. But so long as you find any church that is faithful to Christ and His Word and a loving congregation with whom you can grow in the faith, praise God for that. That's our desire for everybody. And church, this really needs to be our mindset because this is how Jesus wants us to think. The one who is not against you is for you. And if there be any proud or competitive spirit in us, we must repent of it and remember that our allegiance is to the universal body of Christ, to the kingdom of God. And we must be those whose hearts overflow with humility and charity toward other brothers and sisters. Now, in this final portion in verse 51, we see the other way in which spiritual pride is frequently manifested, and that is toward unbelievers. These verses from verses 51 to 56 
is actually a major turning point in Luke's gospel as Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. But we'll come back to this more next week, Lord willing. But today I just want to focus our attention on, on yet another correction that Jesus gives to John and his brother James. Because as Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem, he desired to pass through the region of the Samaritans. Now, who are the Samaritans? You've seen that term probably throughout the Gospels. Well, the Samaritans were half-breeds. Okay? They were those who lived in the northern part of Israel, in the region of Samaria, and they had mixed Jewish and Gentile blood. And the reason for this is found in the history we see in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 to 41. You can go read that at home uh, this week if you'd like. You find there that after the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered and exiled by the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC as an act of God's judgment on them, the Assyrians came in and settled in Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom. Jerusalem was the capital of the kingdom of Judah, the south. Samaria was the capital of the north in Israel. And when the Assyrians came in and settled in Samaria, they brought in all kinds of Gentiles from all over the world to Samaria. And inevitably, they mixed together with any Israelites that were remaining there. Fast forward to the first century, the region of Samaria had become a giant melting pot of Jewish blood mixed with Gentile blood. And thus, the Samaritans were half-breeds. Mudbloods, as you would call them, in the wizarding world of Harry Potter. In any case, over the centuries, the, the pure blood Jews grew to hate the Samaritans and reviled them out of spiritual pride. Oh, we're the pure Jews. We have the pure blood of God being God's holy and chosen people. And you guys got mixed in with that filthy Gentile dog blood. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans returned the favor in equal hatred. And so there was hostility between the two. Well, then, it's no surprise here that as Jesus intends to cross through their region and sends his disciples ahead of him to find any place of lodging, any home that would receive him and be hospitable to them, we find that the village of the Samaritans rejected him and his disciples. Now, how did John and James, the sons of Zebedee, React to this. They said in verse 54, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and destroy them all? And there's a reason why Jesus nicknamed these two brothers the sons of thunder. They had a very strong personality. They were proud and boisterous and they always wanted to zap people if they disagreed with them. And so Jesus was probably looked at them and said, Sheesh, you is a bunch of thundercats. And that's why uh, he named them the sons of thunder. Jesus had a great sense of humor. But when they made this proposal, they weren't just saying that out of nowhere, but they were alluding to the prophet Elijah back in 2 Kings chapter 1 as Elijah called fire down from heaven for the servants of the king Ahaziah who that were coming after him. And so in some sense, what they had suggested was indicative of their zeal for Christ, how much they cared about his honor. And wanting to do what was done for the prophet Elisha. And so that in and of itself is commendable. Some people care nothing for the honor of Christ. And they won't lift a finger to stand for him because they love him little. 
They have no backbone and they cower down under the pressure of this world. But here's where they were wrong. The context of Elijah calling down fire from heaven was an act of defense. It was God defending his defenseless prophet as the wicked king Ahaziah sent his men to go to Elijah, not to ask Elijah for a cup of sugar, but to execute Elijah. And Elijah had nowhere to turn, and so God sent fire down from heaven to protect his prophet. But here, James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven. Why? As an act, not of defense, but of offense. As an act of retribution and vengeance for rejecting Jesus and dishonoring him. And this shows how easily a spiritual virtue can become a spiritual vice. We can take a good zeal for Christ and turn it into spiritual pride, an attitude of vitriol against those who reject Jesus. But that's not how he wants us to be. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And all along is to remember that we were once just the same, rejecting God, defaming His honor, until the grace of God opened our eyes. You know, this has been a growing concern for me as I see the state of the church today. It's no secret that the world is speeding away from biblical truth and biblical values. Our society is growing increasingly godless and is succeeding even in deceiving many churches to join along with them. And in such a landscape, there is a remnant of believers holding fast to the Bible and its worldview. But I've noticed that The few and faithful are often prone to growing in disdain for the godless world. It's tempting, myself included. It's a difficult balance of fervently rejecting godless ideology while at the same time having tender love and pity for godless souls. And I don't think we do it well. I don't think we maintain the balance well for one reason or another, whether lopsided to one end or to the other end. And we need to be honest with ourselves with how tempted we are. And one of the reasons why it is so tempting is because it makes us feel very godly and very devoted, very holy and very set apart when we can notice everything that is wrong with this world and everything that is unbiblical about it and we castigate the world. Beware if you find yourself spending a lot of time ranting to other Christians about how lost the world is and you you enjoy the thrill, the adrenaline that comes from saying, yeah, the world is so messed up. It is so ungodly. And this is the truth. This is the truth. And they're wrong. They're in error. Yeah, I agree with you. But be careful if you find yourself spending all your time ranting to other Christians about how lost the world is instead of spending that time talking to that lost world of how merciful Christ is to such ungodly sinners like you and me. Beware if you notice yourself always talking about a Christian worldview, Christian worldview, and I'm all for it. But you're always talking about a Christian worldview and not enough about Christ. And his person, 
the loveliness of who he is, the warmth of his grace, and how gracious he is even now, each and every day, to believers like you and me. And how apart from him, and apart from his tender patience, I am nothing. And how easy it is to have an attitude of praying for fire to come down from heaven to consume the ungodly, as it were, rather than praying for the Holy Spirit to convert the ungodly. In fact, even though James and John were hoping for a rerun of Sodom and Gomorrah and fire and brimstone all coming down, God had a very different thought in mind. Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Let me show you this. That first of all, Acts, the book of Acts, if you didn't know, is volume two of Luke's writings. Luke wrote Luke, and Luke wrote Acts. And so Acts is the sequel to his gospel account, if you will. And although the Samaritans rejected Jesus in Luke chapter 9, it was not God's will that fire should consume them, because in his timing, God would save the Samaritans too. He would use Saul's persecution of Christians to scatter the believers all throughout the region. And it says in Acts chapter 8 verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. James and John had a plan to smite the Samaritans because they rejected the ways of God. But God had a plan to save the Samaritans because the truth is, everyone has rejected the ways of God. And everyone is in need of His grace. You see, spiritual pride is graceless. And it produces very graceless attitudes. And it's unable and unwilling to see the lost as pitiful and precious souls that are hungry for the joy that only the gospel can give. The joy that the Samaritans experienced on that day in Acts chapter 8. And the question is, will we learn from the prideful errors of Jesus' disciples. Church, this is a vital issue to take seriously. And it is an issue that is very near and dear to my heart as my, my prayerful aspiration for our church has always been from the moment I got here that we would be a gracious people. That we would be so saturated in God's grace that there is a constant awareness that we cannot boast of anything but are just grateful recipients of all that He has given to us freely and generously of His own accord. And it's that kind of a congregation that grows much in faith. Why? Because they're not afraid to be vulnerable with each other, to honestly share their struggles with one another. And they have a confidence that their brothers and sisters will not look down on them but will remind them of the grace that sustains them too. It is only a habitual fixation on this amazing grace of God 
that brings us into the likeness of Christ. Remember what Isaiah 42 says of him. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. And so let us be like our Savior, so gentle, so lowly, and so tender to others, just as he has been to us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for revealing to us through your Son your heart of grace to us. Forgive us for so often being arrogant and being self-impressed and self-sufficient. Help us to always humble ourselves and to be happy recipients, always dependent on the mercy that you give to us that are new every morning, that are so abundant for us. We thank you that you even give to us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And through the bread and the cup, you remind us visibly and tangibly of our daily need of your grace. We ask that you would set apart these ordinary elements now as we prepare to take them and use them to minister to our souls and to increase our faith, our trust in the confidence of your grace and your grace alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.